Hey, I'm Eric Tarnberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with Esther Morell. Esther is perhaps the world's foremost expert on relationships. In this episode, we talk about why desire wanes in relationships, how she would devise her own sex education curriculum, why a bit of jealousy in relationships is a good thing, how couples make non-monogamy work, how childhood affects one's relationships, and much, much more. This is a fantastic episode. So Esther, there's a lot we want to... Uh, get into, but I want to start with a with an intro question. When uh, you're at dinner parties and if people are unfamiliar with your work and they ask you, uh, "What do you do for a living?" H- how do you answer them? Um, if I don't want them to tell me their personal stories, <laughs> I tell them I'm a physicist. <laughs> that stops the conversation cold. <laughs> um, on other occasions, I may say I'm a therapist. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. Uh, I'm a relationship thinker. Sometimes I specify and I say I'm a cross-cultural psychologist. And then they say, what does that mean? And I say, well, I work on the intersection between relationships, sexuality, and cross-cultures, either globally cross-cultural, either the influence of the digital culture, either the shift from from collectivism to individualism, as a cultural shift, but how relationships in change and evolve because of large cultural changes, changes of political regimes, situations like that, um, how they affect relationships. And primarily, I look at um, gender roles and uh, child-rearing practices. And if I really want to get people talking, <laughs> just to say I'm a sex therapist. <laughs> and... Did you, when did you, just to get some background to inform our conversation, when did you know that sort of beyond being a one-to-one uh, therapist that you could make, you know, a living and, and a business, you know, doing this type of stuff? When was the moment that you said, hey, this can be a lot bigger than, than what I'm currently doing? I am embarrassed to say, but it's very recent. Um, you know, th- being a therapist is probably working in the one and only tech-free room that is left. People must close their phone. You don't get emails. You don't get texts. You get, I mean, it is a totally techno-free environment. So um, the concept of scaling, I think, really began for me um, after the first TED Talk. Um, you know, I have 13 million viewers of my two TED Talks, and um, I began to understand not just the size of the audience, but also maybe the need of the audience and the hunger that people have all over the world, all ages, all orientations, all races, for wise, sound relationship thinking and advice that embraces complexity and doesn't just kind of give you a one, two, three techniques that don't always seem to work so easily. So I began to understand there is a need out there. I began to think... Um, there's a way to do it that doesn't feel like you're selling out uh, and you're trying to, because therapy is a slow process. It's an in-depth process. It's a process of iteration and going digital is really a reverse. And I, um, I would go to all these entrepreneurial events, to mastermind talks, to YPO, EO, Summit, you know, all the Founders Forum. I've been many times talking about relationships 
And everyone would say, you know, when, when are you going to go to scale and go digital and, and bring your message out in a, in a bigger way? Um, so I launched a first online workshop, just literally artisanal, from my kitchen with my business partner, Lindsay Rotowski, not knowing anything about any of this, um, except calling all the people who had said, the day you do something, I've worked with Tony Robbins for 12 years as his lead relationship therapist. I, I um, you know, I had lots of people I could really reach out to, and I did. We really reached out to all these people who uh, were more than generous with us, and uh, within two weeks, we had pretty much... Uh, Ah, we had hundreds of people registered to this first webinar. We didn't know, you know, we had no, I had no website. This is to tell you how much of a, I had a, a very old kind of website of a Neanderthal I was. Then we did a second one and then we launched a company. At that point, I understood. Um, also, I did a lot of work on kind of what is the message? What is the brand? What do I stand for? Who am I reaching out to? What is unique about me? Um, and once I had very good answers to that, and once I decided also that I would continue to be a therapist, so that I stay grounded, I stay in the trenches, um, and um, and at the same time, I take the essence of the message. Then when I did the first webinar, I had um, a friend of mine, Jesse Elder, gave me two very good points of advice. He looked at one of the webinars. I had done many teleclasses, but always for therapists. I had never done direct to the consumer. And he said, you're not lecturing, you're coaching. And you're not sharing information only, you're creating a community. And from that moment on, I understood the shift. And, um, you know, we've grown our, our mailing list and our Facebook. I mean, we've grown in 150% in a year. It's been quite incredible. It's like People kept saying, after we read your book, we have nowhere to go. Where do we learn more from you? If I can't come and see you, if I can't do, if I'm not a therapist who gets trained by you, where do I go with my partner, you know, to rekindle desire, to understand the paradox of security and adventure, to understand what it's like to be single in the digital age, to, to, be, to, bring, to build a relationship, to negotiate boundaries in a relationship, to talk about non-monogamy before the crisis uh, hits. To, uh, to deal with discrepancies of desire, to, to rekindle passion when it has kind of lost itself. All the questions that people have been bringing to me. Um, and so now we are actually launching on April 19, our first um, four-hour, 15, 15 exercises, 20-something little videos um, on rekindling desire that is totally tailored on the basis of 32 years of work, basically. Let, let's talk about desire for a second. Uh, one question. What do you think is the role of, uh, of, je of jealousy in a healthy relationship? So this is a very interesting cross-cultural question because um, in the United States, people often pride themselves that they are not jealous because it comes with the egalitarian ethos. So egalitarianism means I don't own you, therefore I cannot be possessive. We are both separate autonomous individuals and therefore jealousy is frowned upon. And often if you go elsewhere or if you betray me or if you breach the boundaries or I may not admit that I'm jealous. I, Americans are more likely to say I'm angry. <laughs> Whereas many other cultures see jealousy as an intrinsic part of love. 
there is a tension in love between the desire to possess and the desire to let free, the desire to hold on or to hold back and to desire to let go. So I to look at jealousy in the right proportions. I'm not talking about pathological jealousy here as an intrinsic element of love and of lust and of passion um, that I find myself often um, in a way uh, educating Americans that it's okay to feel jealous and I would say it's even more so among gay men they have the least permission to be jealous because if we are non-monogamous let's assume when they are um, and, and, and we are meant to understand the need for sexual expression then for sure we can't be jealous so there is a kind of a the more you go toward open relationships the more jealousy is, is even more um, complicated to admit uh, rather than in the traditional patriarchal model. What are you supposed to do if you don't feel jealousy in your relationship? Is that something you can cultivate? I don't think you have to have it. I think that when you have it, you need to normalize it. You need to understand it. Um, I think sometimes people are not jealous because they fundamentally are confident, are secure, trust their partner. Um, and, um, and or also have a deep respect for freedom and autonomy. At times, I think people say they're not jealous because they defend themselves against it. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with the fear of abandonment. I don't want to have to deal with the fear of rejection. Um, I don't want to feel that the vulnerability that comes with jealousy. Um, I don't want to feel that I am more dependent on you. There's a big pride here in not being dependent, right? So... I think that when you, somebody says, I'm not jealous, it needs to be checked. What do you mean? Is it a defense against it or is it really a different experience of how you are in the world? And that's fine too. What you're going to hear from me on a lot of things is that there isn't one answer and there isn't a one-size-fits-all. I'm curious, how have you, what's something that you used to fervently believe that you now see as misguided in some way? Or how does like, your thinking evolve? on these concepts? Oh, I would say, that's a great question. I would say uh, so many things, so many things. Uh, but probably the more important one is that me too, I, I, I grew up with the romantic ideal that you're going to find the one and that when you find the one, you know it because that one is so extraordinary that he or she makes it so that you have no desire anymore to look for anyone else. That that person is so phenomenal that they stop all your inner rumblings, all your doubts, all your FOMO, all your... Um, and that that person is going to meet you everywhere and satisfy all your needs. Um, and I think that if there is one myth that I have seriously debunked, it is the notion that there is one person for everything and that there is this grand ambition of love um, in which one person will be your, your, you know, your best friend, your trusted confidant, your passionate lover, um, and your co-parent, and your intellectual equal, and uh, your partner in business if he's a co-founder or she's a co-founder. I mean, it just the list is endless. And I think for a while, I also thought that my husband, I'm married 31 years, I have two sons. I also, for you know, I'm going back a long time now, but there was a time when I thought I should be able to talk with him about everything. And if I can't talk with him, then there's something missing and there's a, a gap in our intimacy. Right, you know, and as Tony Robbins often says, it's like, don't turn 
your husband into a hairy woman, you know, get a girlfriend, go talk to your friends. So the understanding that we need an entire community to support one relationship is definitely an entrenched idea for me now that I probably didn't have 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, let's talk a bit about uh, monogamy and non-monogamy. How has your thinking evolved over the years in, in this concept and in your own life? I think... Um, look, definitely in the romantic ideal, passion is always monogamous. <laughs> Love may not be, but passion is. Okay, so when you are passionate and obsessed and single-minded and utterly focused on one person, you definitely are not necessarily thinking, you know, about other people. It's it, it evolves. I think that for a long time I embraced a model in which I just didn't question monogamy. They put it like that. The the monogamy is the sacred cow of the romantic ideal. Uh, of course, we no longer arrive monogamous at relationships. We make commitments and we stop being non-monogamous. We, we become exclusive. You know, it, as I often say, monogamy used to be one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. <laughs> um, you know, and so the first thing that changed is that I began to actually think about monogamy rather than assume monogamy. The second thing is that monogamy needs to be negotiated as it is in gay couples and not as a given and that the very act of talking about it questions it. The third thing is that it needs to be talked about as part of the beginning of any relationship rather than being afraid of it and most people end up discussing boundaries and monogamy generally in the heat of a crisis not in the early stages of a relationship. The fourth one is that monogamy is not necessarily only defined through sexual exclusiveness. Monogamy can also be defined through a primary emotional commitment, a, lo a loyalty to another person that may or may not involve a contract of sexual exclusiveness. And that monogamy may be distinguishing between two types of relationships, Relationships that define themselves based on the sense of uniqueness and relationships that define themselves based on the sense of exclusiveness. This is a concept of Aaron Benzeev. Um, you know, and uniqueness is about what is special amongst us, but that doesn't mean that we don't have other special things with others. And exclusiveness is a relationship that defines itself by what is not allowed outside of the relationship. And those are two different models. So when I see a couple today, I definitely, within the first session, will ask, what is your monogamy contract? What is your monogamy agreement, as Tammy Nelson calls it? Um, it's a question that I probably would not have asked before. Have you changed it? What has been your negotiation about it? What is your understanding of monogamy? Let's first begin with that. What is your understanding of the boundaries in your relationship? Right. Different things have changed around that one. So I have a question about if you decide to sort of open things up and have multiple sexual relationships at a time, how, how do you recommend that people navigate the prioritization of those relationships? Look, I think that before, when people come to me to speak about that, the first thing I do is I ask them, tell me about what is going on between the two of you. What is your relationship like? I, um, I think that any non-monogamous agreement, any consensual non-monogamy, any polyamory requires two mature 
emancipated people. I don't believe that non-monogamy or poly is an ad hoc solution to sexlessness in a couple, for example. We don't, ex we don't have anything to do with each other anymore, so we're going to outsource it to others. Um, I don't believe that um, poly or consensual non-monogamy is a de facto answer to a lack of commitment or a challenge with commitment. I think that um, it's important to, to understand all these agreements as a philosophy of life, as a respect for sexual fulfillment, as an understanding for the need for personal freedom. Um, and, and people need to know, you know, we all need security and freedom. And some of us need more security and some of us need more freedom. Um, and so it's important to give people tools to actually check, am I made for this? Is this part of my temperament? Is this where I see my authenticity? Is this something I can live with if my partner engages in this? Um, I think that the problem of a lot of these conversations for a lot of people, not all, is that it's often a shortened conversation, a curtailed one, rather than one that needs to happen multiple times. Primarily, very few of us even have a model about it. It's not like we've grown up with this in front of us and we know how other people have done it. Um, so that's the conversation is tell me about you, tell me about you, about commitment, about loyalty, about intimacy, about sexuality, about sexual boundaries, about jealousy, all of what we've just addressed. And from that place, what kind of couple would you like to be? How do you envision this? Is it something that you would be sharing? Is it something that you would want to talk about? Is it something that is predicated on the agreement of the partner? Or is it prefer, or you prefer a don't ask, don't tell model in which you each have zones of privacy and opaqueness that the other person prefers not to know about? What do you do with one of you wants clear transparency and one of you prefers privacy? You know, we all live on a continuum between secrecy, privacy and transparency. And all of that needs to be unpacked patiently so that people don't get hurt and wounded. What do you do in that situation where one person wants transparency and the other person wants privacy? You first start by not making a decision. You really let the people listen. You know, in a lot of these things, there is often a rush to come up with an answer and a resolution. And as we all know from the Harvard Business Negotiation Model, you need a long time to first define what is the issue. Then you need to brainstorm at length about the issue. Then you come up with various options about resolving the issue. And only then do you choose something. So you also tell people you're going to choose a certain model, then see how it works, then come back and tweak it. Like anybody who develops an app, you know, mm -hmm. you tweak it. Relationship arrangements are not made once and for all, especially when you want fluid ones like consensual non-monogamy, that are agreements that require fluidity, flexibility, and adaptability. It requires coming back, checking in, and not being annoyed because it's not working for the other person. And then realizing that maybe there's going to be an asymmetry. One of you wants to know sooner. One of you wants to be told a year later. One of you likes details. One of you doesn't want to know any detail. Do you think you can straddle this kind of differentiation within this agreement? And you ask the questions and you let the couples grapple with them. Uh, I should tell a person, you know, when, when I'm dating someone, that uh, we're just in beta and we're, we're working on it and, and there'll be a new release soon. That was, that was a tech joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> you can 
for this for the for the couple too. I mean, you know, um, I think a lot of what I uh, I hope that I bring to the conversation to all these difficult conversations and new conversations is that I embrace the complexity of them. I'm actually doing the opposite of just simplifying them because I know too many people get hurt and too many people feel lonely and too many people feel rejected and it can be done better. Um, and so even when I do the rekindling desire, it's a lot of shaping the conversations between the people who need to have them. You know, most people talk a lot about sex, but rarely with the person they're having sex with. The quality of the sexual conversations in couples is often very poor. So it demands real guidance, giving them the words. What are the questions to ask? Um, and then what do you do with the answers? How do you take that in? How do you reflect it back? How do you validate the point of view that is different from yours? How do you not just jerk defensively you know, and, uh, and react like that? How do you create reflectiveness rather than reactivity? All of those kind of things. Uh if you were designing an, uh, an ideal sort of sexual education curriculum that every sort of, uh, you know, college educated, you know, college age person should go through, what would be the principles behind that curriculum? Oh, my dear Eric, my sex education program would start at age four, not in college. <laughs> uh, tell I us more. Much, well, yes, I would follow, they exist. And probably one of the best programs to look at on a national basis is Holland. Holland has a nationalized sex education or relationship education, actually, program that starts at age four, four to seven, seven to nine, nine to 11, 11 to 14, 14 to 18. And it is developmental. But the most important thing is that it's in an integrative approach. It doesn't just talk about sex. It talks about sex and relationships, sex and pleasure, sex and free choice, sex and agency. It doesn't just talk about dangerous dysfunction and disease. It looks at connection, intimacy, um, expressiveness and pleasure. Um, it doesn't just talk, look at a woman's body and kind of from the, from the breast to the knees bypasses the middle parts and it names them. It, it, talks, it doesn't just talk about women's anatomy in terms of ovaries and, and uterus, but it talks about clitoris. It talks about the man's body, not just in terms of its genitals, but it actually presents an entire body for the man so that it, he doesn't just remain focused on his penis the whole time. It's an integrated approach that looks at life, that looks at health in general, looks at relational health, physical health, and sexual health as intertwined, and, um, and does it without feeling icky about it. It's, it's, when you watch the videos, I come from Belgium, from the Flemish part, there's, you see, there's an, a comfort with the issue. In America, sex is the risk factor. You've had billions of dollars put into sexual abstinence campaigns. I mean, Obama is just now finally, finally cutting the last funding to abstinence campaigns. Um, when, when, the, when the medical bill was passed, when the Obamacare was passed, the conservatives succeeded in slipping in more funding for abstinence campaigns as part of the bill. So it didn't succeed in eradicating it earlier. It is a terrible education system because it actually has not prevented any of the problems it was meant to solve. US has more teen pregnancy, earlier onset 
of sexual activity two years earlier than the liberal Dutch, more STD proliferation, a high degree of promiscuity matched with an enormous degree of ignorance. So we are not going forward. We've been actually going a little bit backwards. Um, that's my sex education program. It's actually one that I take from other people who've done an enormous amount of thinking about it. Um, when you go to the doctor, they ask you about your sexual history. They ask you about your abuse history. I mean, so that it becomes a part of the general intake questionnaire and not this thing on the side that is constantly wrapped in silence and in shame and in guilt. And why are we so uniquely sort of uh, susceptible to, to shame and guilt? Like, what, what's the relationship you see with a lot of Americans and shame as it relates to relationships and sex and how can they sort of work on, work on that? Well, I think, you know, when I say in the U.S., sex is the risk factor. What is the different model? The different model, the European model, is that sex is a natural part of human life. Being irresponsible is the risk factor. So the model of sex education has to be a model that embraces pleasure and responsibility. Once you have responsibility built in from age four, you will have a very different level of assault and you will have a very different college situation. And you will not have a group of people who need to be utterly drunk in order to engage in sex, which they won't remember the next day. Because when you're comfortable with something, you actually want to remember it. That's the interesting thing, is that the level of drinking and mind-numbing that needs to take place only speaks to the degree of anxiety that actually accompanies this whole thing. And it's not just going to be about sex and intercourse or oral sex. It's going to be about relating, you know, even if it's casual sex, but it's going to have a component that actually likes the plot, the story, the seduction, the flirtation, the, the coming on, the picking up. The, the whole thing has a plot, after all. I mean, that's what makes it rather interesting, the storyboard. So part of what is happening here is that... Um, you can put it on puritanism. You can put it on the fact that America has, for a long time, been much more comfortable with violence than with sexuality, has an X rating system on sex, but no rating system on violence. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which sex has been singled out here as a, a rather um, central area of discomfort um, for men, boys and women, both. When the game became popular like five or ten years ago and sort of the whole surrounding communities around sort of pickup artists um, and the TV show, what, did you follow that at all? And two, did you, if you did, did you think that that was, they sort of missed the point there or what was, what are your thoughts on sort of that? I just had a, a seven hour lunch with Neil Strauss, uh, <laughs> a big fan. Yeah, yeah. And I new book is actually a real important because in a way the new book is is the growing up of this man yeah um into a level of a new level of maturity so i think lots of boys want to pick up um and lots of shy boys who didn't know how to approach a boy or a girl um needed help and the more digital they are the less they know how to approach a real life person and the more they've been masturbating to porn since age 11, I'm going to use a nice word, um, to porn since age 11, the less they are able to experience related sex and relatedness and under, not relatedness just as in talking. It's the, it's the fact that relationships are all about nuances and ambiguities. They're very complicated because they're, they're never that clear. It's not a mathematical equation. 
and uh, and straddling these ambiguities is is an art. It's an art. How you respond. I just coached a, a kid this week on Tinder. You know, to how to, I was watching these messages that were going back and forth. I mean, it wasn't a kid. He was a young man in his early thirties, and I just thought, you know, a major, major, brilliant, you know, tech geek but had no idea how to write. Now, frankly, the girls were not much more interesting. I couldn't believe people would even spend 10 minutes on these Tinder messages. Who would want to meet? There was zero juice, zero juice, <laughs> you know. So I said, forget scoring, forget making sure you're going to meet somebody. Understand the difference between flirting and scoring. Flirting is an art. It's a play. It's come from the French word fleuret, the tip of the sword. It's teasing. You know, and, and, and the greatest literature, Don Juan, everyone's been writing about how you do that kind of pickup, not the landing somebody, not the assuring that you have okay as a man, you've affirmed yourself because you got somebody to go home with you tonight or you picked somebody up, you know, it's a whole different culture around it, a whole different art. Um, and I think that if I was to pair up, you know, the, the U.S. with another country, I would pair it up with Brazil. <laughs> in, in what ways? Because there, is, there are cultures that have, a, or the French for that matter too, but, you know, there are cultures that will teach you um, a different art, that is diff a different art of pickup that is actually not called pickup, um, in which you, you learn to create a playfulness a curiosity, a mystery, an intrigue, you know, in the interaction between two men, two women, or man and woman, that um, that makes it last, that you get engaged with, that is witty, that has humor, that 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 you like who you become in it. It's not that you make the other person like you, it's that you like who you are. It brings out parts of you that you don't often interact with. You suddenly have a voice, a different voice. It's that entire art in the pickup that I think really uh, could use a boost. And, and I said so to Neil as well. Well, talk more about that conversation or sort of that evolution that he's gone through. Because I, I read the book and I, I agreed with that premise. And I think it's something that a lot of men go through or should go through or want to go through. Uh, but talk a little bit about that, about that evolution. Well, I think the best thing I can say is go online, look at a strand, and you'll see a fantastic panel that I did together with Neil Strauss and uh, Christopher Ryan and myself did a wonderful panel um, for the publication of Neil's new book, At a Strand. And I think it really shows a very interesting conversation um, between a lot of men who were inspired by Neil you know, because he gave them a manual, he gave them a, a, a map. Um, many, many, many boys who, and young men who just didn't know how the ABC of how to start a conversation um, across, the, across the divide, not just the gender divide, just simply across the divide, offline, I would say, or online. He made it a video game that, you know, yeah. men could play um, yeah. and feel good. And Another panel that I think is also very interesting that I did with Neil, with uh, not with Neil, with Dan Savage at Google, that I think is also uh, addresses a lot of the um, the men's community. Part of what I'm doing actually is I bring a certain kind of relationship, thinking and advice to men because I think women are overserved and men are really underserved when it comes to a lot of these issues. Moving for, uh, tracks a little bit, how do you think? one's childhood affects their ability to be in a close relationship 
uh, and their desire for varying degrees of closeness in a relationship. All of us grow up with the dual needs of connection and separateness. We need togetherness, we need closeness, and we also need freedom and space. And some of us come out of our childhood and we need more security and we need more protection against the fear of abandonment. And some of us come out of our childhood and we need more space and more freedom because we felt smothered or suffocated. So we each come out of our childhood with a greater need for one or the other. We both have both needs, but I would say, tell me how you were loved, and I will tell you how you love, but I also will tell you how you make love. I think that our emotional history is completely inscribed in the physicality of sex. I think that where we learn to feel entitled or deserving, or where we feel to, that we are not entitled and not deserving and not worthy, where we learn to, that we are lovable or desirable, where we learn that we are allowed to experience pleasure, where we learn what I think are the seven basic verbs of relationships, which is that where we learn to ask, where we learn to give, where we learn to receive, where we learn to take, where we learn to share, and where we learn to refuse. These, and the next one it would be to fantasize, to dream. The seven essential verbs of relationships we learn in our early relationships with our parents or our primary caregivers. That doesn't mean that we have a deterministic outcome in life and that whatever I experienced at home is de facto going to define what I'm going to live in my adult life. But it does shape our attachment style, and um, which we can reshape which we can change, but it does give us our original map. So I do have a biographic understanding of intimacy and sexuality as we bring to relationships. And you've said that in the past, um, when I've seen you speak, that um, this, we're often attracted to people who are different than us in that way. Um, someone who needs more space might want someone uh, who prefers more closeness. So how, how do you reconcile that after this sort of initial phase of a relationship? Um, you know, what the thing that attracted you to someone becomes the thing that bothers you. So, you know, I do believe in the concept of complementarity. I don't know if I believe, but I, I find it a very useful concept. Relationships are grounded in complementarity. And sometimes the complementarity turns on itself and becomes polarized. So the very thing that is originally attractive, because it is different in your partner, is what then becomes the source of what is the conflict. So I had a letter that I received actually this morning from someone I saw this week. And, you know, it was very helpful for me to see you, she says, because you reminded me why I, what I liked about him in the beginning. You reminded me that in the beginning, actually, I liked the fact that he was very structured and he was planned and he grounded me and he gave me a sense of, you know, he was reliable and I could count on him. I come from a background where everything was super chaotic. And yes, we are very loose and yes, we travel a lot. And and yes, I've moved 10 times, but I longed for something that was more rooted. And he brought me these roots. Now, of course, I'm complaining that he doesn't want to move, that he's, you know, sedentary and sometimes even rigid. But at least it brought back to me what about that was so meaningful to me and vice versa. So the, one of the classic complementarities is the one between 
a person who represents roots, structure, groundedness, solid. And the one who represents more liquid and more flow and more fluid. And they need each other. One says to the other, when I met you, you made me do things I had never done before. You expanded me. You made me take risks. You made me be more bold and more daring. And the other person said, you gave me a sense of home. You know, and there are beautiful words for this. Um, but it's really like, like, like Ulysses and the epic story. It's always about home and journey. And that complementarity you find in a lot of couples. You find that in a lot of couples, there's often a certain tension that then evolves around that, that one person is more the one that, that focuses on the connection and the togetherness and is more afraid also of, of, of the separation and of the abandonment. And the other one is the one who emphasizes more the need for space and the need for, for separateness and, and, the, and is often the person who is also more in touch with the fear of losing themselves. So you have this tension and the beauty of a couple is to navigate that tension. It's, and then sometimes it's asymmetric and sometimes it finds itself a little bit more, more balanced. One person was very attracted to the fact that the other one says it as it is, is not afraid to say their thoughts, is not afraid to, to, uh, to hurt somebody even when they say their thoughts, is outspoken. When they're angry, they're angry. When they're happy, they're happy. When they're sad, they're sad. And the other person has always been afraid to say anything that they think or feel because they're afraid that the other people will be angry. So at first, I'm inspired by you. I'm inspired by you because I think you're going to teach me to be more expressive. But then, because you are the expressive one who gets mad and pissed at me when I say something you don't like, and I am the one who was always afraid to ruffle people because I'm a people pleaser, so now I'm not speaking my mind anymore. So now it's become a problem. You see? And yeah, I, at yeah. first, was very happy because I could make you become more outgoing and all of that. And now I'm really tired of always having to guess you to figure out what it is that you... Um, that you're thinking, you know, just say it. Don't set me up and tell me whatever you want, dear. And then when I tell you what I want, then you make a face because that's not really what you wanted. That kind of dance. Mm -hmm. And so then what do you think are the, the main things that um, determine whether you're compatible with someone over the long term, if some of these differences are good? I think that compatibility is absolutely not about the, the nature of the difference. There are people who live, you know, there are three kinds of couples. There are couples who, if you take circles, right, this, and you look, there are couples where the two circles overlap. They are very much organized around sameness, similarity, and togetherness. And then there are couples who have a very small overlapping circle and very big autonomous circle in which they have separate lives, separate interests, separate friends, but there's a very, very strong core between them. It is rarely the, the, the specific difference that creates distress. It is the way that people deal with the difference that creates distress. It's the emotional valence of that difference. Some people get along extremely well and they are completely different people. And some people are rather similar. In fact, they're so similar that they fight about the slightest thing that they disagree about because any disagreement becomes a source of conflict. So compatibility is in how you straddle, how you negotiate, how you, you deal with difference is essential to compatibility, not the specific things that you are different about. Compatibility is about how... Um, much responsibility you take for your contribution to, to the relationship. What makes a relationship incompatible is blame and attack. 
is deflection. What makes a relationship mature and growing is the degree to which people can own their stuff and see what it is that they do in order to, you know, to make the thing problematic or to make the thing better. Um, compatibility is the ability to, uh, to remain curious in the other person, to really see the other person as an other person and to remain interested in them as a person, not just as a function in your life, as a partner, as the one who does this and that for you. That is an essential ingredient of compatibility. Admiration is another major. Um, admiration is even different from respect because admiration really implies respect and otherness, the ability to, to value what the other person brings to you. Compatibility is when you are more in a system of gratitude than in a system of criticism. And when you're more looking at what the other person brings to your life than everything that, that you could be picking at them on and being irritable about and everything that you don't like about them, often because it's the very things that you see in yourself. Those are the elements, and there are many others, but those are key elements to, to compatibility. A lot of people say they, they want to marry their best friend. Do they actually want to marry their best friend, or do, do they mean something else? <laughs> Oh, you know, I am known for saying, get a best friend or a few. Uh, your partner is not your best friend. Right. Yeah. Your partner is your partner. And that implies that they're your ally, that they have your back, that you can trust them. And those, of course, are also characteristics that you attribute to best friends. But people don't want sex with their best friend. <laughs> people don't want sex with their roommate. People don't want sex with their brothers and sisters. You know, friendship is a symmetric relationship, uh, and it's based often on similarity. And on re but but a relationship actually needs a certain amount of tension, in the good sense of the word. Um, and that tension you don't necessarily want with the best friend. You know, you cannot have a best friend who is not your best friend. That's the essential issue of friendship. Friendship is utterly symmetric. Well, love is not. You can love a person more than they love you. There are periods in a relationship long term where you are more into the other person than they are into you, um, where you are m more in need of them than they need you. It's not symmetric love. It's a different story. So I know what people mean when they say, you know, my partner is my best friend. I get it. It means that you get from them the things that you expect from a best friend. But I will still say, get a best friend. Have your partner be that special thing that is called partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, lover, husband, life companion, however you name them, give them a separate name because there's only one or sometimes if you're in a poly relationship, more of those, but they're very few. And then keep your friends around it. The friendship is the circle that holds the relationship. I'm curious about this concept of settling. Uh, some people, you know, don't know if they are settling when they're with their long term, like if there's someone better out there or... They think if they're maybe if they even ask themselves the question if they're settling, then they're definitely settling, or maybe settling isn't a helpful concept at all. Um, what is the, you know when people ask you know are they settling? What, what's this concept to you mean? Oh, I think it's a fantastic uh, cursed word um, that actually is very much intrinsic to a formal culture, and uh, with this notion, you know, by definition, the essence of relationship today is free choice. The problem is that we suffer with the paradox of choice. We have too many, and so we keep thinking there's a better one out there. There may be. That's it. There may be. Maybe there's not a better choice out there, but for sure I can tell you there are others. This happens to be the one that you just met, 
And maybe there may there were others before that you could have been with, but you were too young or not ready or involved in a startup or whatever. And at this point, it's the right timing and, the, and, a, and a good person. And the main piece of it is you are ready. It's not you found the right person. It's you are ready. You may have found the right person many times before. So it has to do with maturity and with a willingness to accept that every commitment and every choice breeds loss. You gain something, you lose something. And hopefully, you'll be able to renew that choice over, that, over the course of your relationship. Maybe not your lifetime, but certainly your relationship. Settling is a, is, is a, is a, it's a second-degree cho- second choice in a way. It's like, I couldn't do better. I just took what I got. Um, I, was, I was anxious. I was getting older. I wasn't going to have kids. I had just been rejected. Um, at least this person will never hurt me. Uh, but I don't really admire them. I don't really value them. But at least, you know, it's all these games that I've much that often say more about our own sense of self-worth or lack thereof than I think, and our inability, therefore, to appreciate the other person at their fullest. Um, so when people say that they are settling, I say I, I go to tell the other person, this person feels that by being with you, they are settling. They don't deserve you. Mm-hmm. It's really, it, it's, a, it's an unspoken, because of course nobody says to their partner, I choose you because I settle. That'll come out later in the next argument. You know, I would go, of course I don't literally do it, but I would want to go to the other person and say, this person isn't valuing you the way you deserve to be valued. For whatever reasons in their own history, they've decided that you are the representation of their settling. And that's F you. Right. I've heard similar you know, thoughts from friends of uh, not settling, but sort of feel that the relationship came too easy. Is that just another version of sort of the insecurity about FOMO culture? Or is that sort of a legit thing that people should think about and sort of to try to cultivate desire in their relationship? No, I don't think it's too easy at all. I think you should consider yourself grateful. (laughs) You know, there are a lot of things you're going to have to struggle for in life. This happens to have been one that came along for you. Take it, grab it. Life, God, life, nature, <laughs> destiny, whoever was kind to you. You know, um, the idea that I, I, this is an interesting thing. I mean, by definition, a relationship is a trip. It's a journey, if you like that word. It's a trip. It's going to be nothing you imagined. Be prepared. If you come with multiple expectations, you should know that expectations are resentment in the make. That instead of thinking about finding the right person, think about what you bring. Instead of thinking about love as a state of enthusiasm, think of it as a verb. It's loving. It's something you're going to be doing and you're going to be learning how to do it even more. And then suddenly your partner has an accident or something bad happened to them and you're going to realize a depth of feeling that you never knew existed inside of you. You're suddenly going to be jolted out of your state of complacency. Suddenly going to realize, my God, this thing is fragile. I could lose you. I don't want to lose you. Now I'm going to do better. Of course we don't. It's like with health. You do it for two weeks and then you forget. Um, you know, you put your helmet on because you almost had an accident or you had an accident and then you, le- you start not wearing your helmet again because we have this sense of omnipotence about us. And love is going to be this thing that's going to shape you. It's going to mature you. It's going to make you into a rich, multi-layered human being. 
Don't ever think of it as a thing that it should be easy or difficult. These are the wrong verbs to, to bring to relationship. Totally the wrong verbs. And then you're going to find that, you know, um, you have feelings that you never thought you had on the good side and on the lesser good side. But here's my theory of relationships. Everybody has certain things that they need to work out when it comes to love, desire, commitment, these kind of things. Some of it comes from their family history and their general cultural history, and some of it comes from their own personal psychology. Every one of us has relationship stuff we need to work out. And the only question is, with whom? You're going to have to do it someday. You're going to do it with this one, you're going to do it with the other one. But this is about you. This is not about finding a person that's going to take care of all of that for you. What you do want is a person with whom you have a shared sense of values. I have often said that there are lots of people you can love, but there are not that many people you can make a life with. It's not the same person sometimes. doesn't mean you don't love the one you make a life with, but it's a different project. The project of building a life, sometimes of building a family, of straddling work, home, children, extended families, friendships, communities. A relationship straddles multiple things. Love doesn't. Love just straddles itself in a way. And there are people that you will love in which you realize that you may not be able to build a life with. You're too different. Your values, your aspirations, your backgrounds, your, your, your goals uh, are too different. So values, a congruence of values, I think, and vision in life does become an essential ingredient of compatibility. Uh, talk more about timing. I mean, you mentioned earlier about you know the right the right you may find the right person, but it might not be the right time. How do people know, or you know, how do you advise people to know when they're ready for a relationship or when they're not ready? Or just talk more about this concept of timing. I mean, timing is growing up. Timing is called maturity. Timing is our developmental arc. Um, you know, we today are marrying later and later. Americans in the 60s, 80% of Americans were married at the age of 20. And today, 20% of them are married in their 20s, early 20s. So that's it. It's a cultural shift, massive. Um, in many other cultures where I travel, people still marry at 14 and at 18. So um, timing is not just a personal choice. In most cultures, and even in the U.S., our sense of timing is a social reality. It's not just where you are at on your own. Um, your grandparents had a different sense of timing. Number two, so timing is a combination between society and individual. Number two, timing is, are you ready to start thinking about more than just you? It's no more just about defining yourself and building your own identity and what you want to be and what you want to do when you grow up. Timing is, um, um, you know, are you able to begin to think about a bigger project, a, a, a horizon that encompasses others and others for which you are responsible for. So you're not just responsible for yourself alone anymore. You're also responsible for for other people. I think that is an essential element of relationships, is that you embrace the idea that you now are part of a twosome and you are responsible also for others and you are and there are consequences of your behaviors for another. Those are two fundamental ideas of relationships. Your behavior no longer just affects you. Not that it ever did, but there is a very close person to you who um, 
who who is directly affected by what you do and the second thing is you are partly responsible for that person so that's one of the big things in timing um, and then when it implies children for those who want kids is the notion that you're ready to embark in this most extraordinary you know unknown that exists on this planet which is to create another human being and to bring them up to become an adult um, that you'll feel really good about, proud about, that, that uh, to whom you will have an experience of legacy, where you, where you are now, you know, being lived through somebody else who's going to carry you when you're no longer there. Um, so those are the elements of timing. Um, I, I think timing is maturity, is another word for it. Um, but I do think that today, a lot of young people, a lot of millennials are way more able to respond to the timing of of startups, of companies, of uh, of, of job switches than they are willing to, to do the timing for relationships. It's like they find more security in an MBA than in a relationship. And in part right. it's because they've seen lots of relationships dissolve and they've seen their parents dis be disillusioned or divorced. So people don't have much much trust in the solidity of relationships in some interesting way, at least in the intimate relationship. They have lots of friends and things like that. Um, and that's a very interesting shift. People used to feel that, they had, that the relationship was the ground from which they leaped into the world to go and do things. People had a model of cornerstone relationships. First I met you, as I came out of school, if I went to school, we built a couple, we created a base, and from that base we developed our careers, we bought our first home, we, we put our first accounts, etc., etc. Today it's the reverse, it's the capstone model. First I finish school, then I begin to develop myself, then I go into my own identity project, then I create my company if I can, then I get my own accounts, then I buy my own house, then when I have everything, then I look for my partner, yeah. who's going to be the crowning of this whole project, <laughs> recognize me at my most authentic and is going to validate all this massa identity <laughs> project development that I've just finished. Right, right. I mean, how do you think that's going to change in the next generation? You, I mean, you, you just mentioned uh, millennials sort of grew up with divorce. Uh, is sort of, is that generation going to uh, sort of get divorced at a similar rate? Or, like, what is marriage going to look like? Uh, oh, Data is, uh, is, the data is showing that millennials, the, the rate of divorce is going to go down among millennials because they are waiting longer, maybe one reason, because they are choosing much more judiciously, maybe another reason, uh, because the relationship, because the egalitarian relationships are generally more satisfying, no doubt, no doubt. They may be often sexually more challenging, but they are definitely intimacy-wise much more satisfying. Uh, so the quality, you know, when couples do well, they are doing much better than the ones from before. Um, I would, that, there is actually quite a, a good emerging data on relationship satisfaction and longevity in millennials. So I do, I, and I think that there's going to be definitely millennials are launching uh, the rethinking of monogamy, which is the next frontier. That is the last thing that, um, that had not yet been renegotiated, right? The boomers brought premarital sex into marriage. Um, the, the next generation brought the concept of um, 
potential non-monogamy and the in the millennials are bringing the concept of polyamory so there is definitely a continuous negotiation around the boundaries of sexuality before during and off before during and outside it, it's often assumed that so for people who are negotiating non-monogamy that once they have kids you know they'll, they'll sort of revert back to monogamy because kids can't grow up like handling that um what is your your thought on that Look, my work is way more about couples who become sexless or who struggle maintaining an erotic connection in the aftermath of children, of having children, than I have about couples negotiating uh, open relationships in the context of family. Mature, open couples negotiate their sexual privacy and it has nothing to do with the kids. The, when it when the, it is, that's it. It's an adult decision that adults make. You know, nobody talks about how the children and anybody this way. I think that children will be way more affected by parents who disconnect sexually from each other, and one day will go elsewhere because they have lost a primary connection that was important to them, then children will be affected by parents going to other people in an open negotiated arrangement. This is a total mistaken priori you know, priority. You know, I would say on the long list of what your children need, parents who have, parents who have a, a healthy sex life should feature as one of these items because there's only one thing that keeps the family together these days, and that's how happy is the couple. If the yeah. couple isn't happy, there is no family. So I'm more concerned with parents maintaining a connection with each other, even if it's an agreed non-monogamous one. That's irrelevant. The point is, are the parents doing well together? That is what's going to determine the future of the life of the children in the family or not. Uh, I want to respect your time, so I'll ask maybe a last couple quick questions. Tell us about the product. So basically, what people have been coming to me talking a lot about is especially when they've had judicious choice. I met the one. We had real passion in the beginning. We had hot sex. We felt so free. We talked all the time. What's happened to us? Or we're losing that. Or I don't want us to lose that. What can we do to harness it, to maintain it? How do we keep our relationship vibrant and alive? Um, or... I thought we were on the same page to, to realize that my partner has actually been faking and hasn't been truthful. What does sexual honesty actually mean? Or my partner has been with someone else. There's been an infidelity. There's been a breach of trust. How do I trust my partner again? How do we reconnect sexually when there's been an emotional tear between us? Or it turns out that we have very different d desires and very different drives, very different interests. In the beginning, my partner was always willing and interested, and right now I feel like I'm constantly having to beg. I don't want to beg. I want to feel that my partner is into it. He or she, by the way. It's not uh, doesn't go in just one direction at all. And this may be between two men and two women as well. Um, so I began to think that a lot, a lot of what people ask is about rekindling desire. And desire not just... Uh, in the sexual sense, the narrow sense. But really, how do we keep this relationship alive, vibrant, engaged? How do we remain playful with each other? How do we remain um, adventurous? So 
the, the whole online workshop is about different sections. What is the difference between sex and eroticism? What happens to sex after kids? What is eroticism? What, how do you connect to your own erotic self? What are sexual conversations? What are they about? How do you engage in them? What exactly do people talk about? What is sexual honesty? How do we talk about sexual boundaries? And how do we negotiate these boundaries? What are some of the tools? And so we have four hours 25 videos and 15 exercises where I take people through each of these. You do them together, you can do them as a single person and then sometimes go to talk with friends and there are lots of self-assessment tools in there or you do them with your partner. Um, I've had a few people do in the beta test, do it actually with exes with whom they had great breakups, with whom they actually stayed friends and said, you know, let's check on what actually happened to us. Because we have had We've had 1,500 surveys and uh, 200 people who did a, a test on the course so that we could really hear what needed to be changed, how to tweak it, what are the, the, the strong points, you know, what are some of the exercises that are needed. Um, there's been a lot, a lot of hours, you know. I talked for 18 hours without script, directly, um, on, on, on all of the questions that you have asked but in their application. Here you are kind of bringing me into your home as your couples therapist, and you will be on a Facebook private community where the exchange is fantastic. I mean, I've watched the conversation and I join on occasion. It really is an incredible community um, of, of radical transparency and honesty that people are engaging in. That is, uh, there's not an ounce of sleaze, there's not an ounce of stupidity, there's just nobody that's off. People are really opening up and, and there's such a hunger for real conversations. Um, you know, women sometimes have women to talk to. Men about a lot of this talk to nobody. And when they talk, they often have to lie. And when they lie, that often means they have to brag. Um, and um, so they have, they have very few places to turn to, actually. Um, so I bring the therapist that I am into your own home. I guide you. Um, I take all these enormous expectations and demands that we have on for our relationships and put them into your pocket, into your phone. Um, I deal with the anxiety that a lot of the people are experiencing. And I look at desire as an expression of hope and energy, as how you maintain your aspirations going in your relationships. Um, and I look at willingness I look at arousal, I look at specific issues that men grapple with, specific issues that women grapple with in the context of open and traditionally monogamous relationships. All of that, um, that's the course, is uh, to reboot and to reimagine relationships in an ongoing way. I think that people have a very clear idea that you go to the gym, you have to go back again and again, you know, that... This is something about having found the one that lets people think that afterwards it's just going to go on on its own. And that it's like a cactus that you may have to water every once in a while, but it dries up actually. And slowly people are coming to understand that a relationship is like a body, is like a system, is like a company, is like a startup. You need to nurture it, you need to water it, you need to bring creativity, imagination and energy to it. And when you do it, the outcome is tremendous. Uh, I can't wait to check that out. And that comes out next week? The 19th. It's being launched on April 19th, exactly. And we'll, get, you know, we'll be sending you all the, the links. So anyone 
you, the, the quickest way is you opt in through my website at estherperel.com. Um, but it really, um, it is a product hunt, if I may say. Yes. Um, because there are very few of those that have been made like that by a therapist that's, you know, with 30,000 hours of sitting in the trenches. And then um, um, that's intergenerational as well. So we know by age who is actually listening to us, what people are really looking for, what's the, what's the help, what's the pain point and what's the help and what's the change that they want to, that they want to implement. Perfect. Uh, Esther, this has been such a fantastic conversation and we're such big fans of your work 